Well, as I said, opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at a very important text that is undoubtedly familiar to all of you, but one which requires repeated study and repetition in our own lives. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Luke writes this, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions." As I said, these are familiar words to all of us, and in the extent of Jesus' earthly ministry, he repeated these truths in various forms to various audiences throughout his ministry. Yet undoubtedly, even as we read through this, you were probably convicted about the starkness of Jesus' terms for discipleship. In fact, let's look at that term, disciple, for just a moment As you probably are aware, even in our day, and especially in our day, because of the strong terms of Jesus' requirements for discipleship, there are many today who want to take this term disciple and use it to define a certain kind of Christian, a certain kind of follower, someone who has extra commitment, someone who has given more of their life to the Lord Jesus. Discipleship in those terms is considered to be something that is elective rather than required. But it's important to note in the history of the church that the term disciple was the original term for all followers, all true followers of Jesus Christ. The term Christian doesn't even appear in our Bibles until Acts chapter 11, verse 26, when Christians are first identified in the city of Antioch. But before that time, the term disciple was the standard definition for all who are true, genuine, authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So for example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we we read this, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing... In number. A few verses later, in 
Verse 7 of Acts 6, we read this, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. But as I said, in our day, often that term disciple is used more to speak of one with exceptional commitment to Christ rather than a base term for defining what the Christian life is all about. You hear of making disciples, not even in terms of evangelistic endeavor, but making disciples in terms of counseling and that extra step that often is, is included in, in church ministry to existing believers. But this is not the picture of the Gospels. It's not part of the teaching of the Gospel writers, and it certainly was not part of Jesus' own teaching. In fact, sometimes we can even take the term discipleship, even in our own contexts, and use it for something that is quite different even than what Jesus intended. We can talk about discipleship groups that come together and they merely discuss church issues or perhaps practical matters in life. Or even discipleship is defined in terms of finding a set of followers who will follow you as a discipleship group leader. But all of these ideas miss the most fundamental definition of discipleship. All of these miss the most basic understanding of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is important for us not only at, at the start of our faith to recognize this reality, but even at regular times to step back and to consider, have I really embraced this reality? And that's what this text does for us this morning. And as we go through it, Luke helps us do this in a, in a very important historical situation in Jesus' own ministry. And it is described for us in these verses in chapter 14 of Luke's gospel, verses 25 to 33. And as Luke challenges our understanding of what it means to follow Christ, he's going to do it with this pericope, this historical account. And we're going to follow this historical account along these three lines. We're going to follow this along these three lines. First of all, we're going to see a fickle multitude, a fickle multitude, and this is going to be, going to be pointed to us in verse 25, a fickle multitude. Then in verses 26, 27, and 33, we're going to see three forbidding conditions, three forbidding conditions. And then in, in the middle of that section, in verses 28 and 32, we're going to see two fearful warnings. So I'm going to walk through each of these. And as we go through these three lines, Luke will help us identify what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ with singular devotion, with self-denial, and with sacrifice. Let's look at the first. This is very important to see as Luke begins setting the context for this teaching of Jesus. He begins in verse 25 and he says this, Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them. So here is the fickle multitude. And you might wonder, why do we see that this is fickle? Well, let me help draw this out as, as Luke describes it here. 
First of all, it's important to note Luke's description. He he calls them, in, in, in our translation, he calls them a large, he says large crowds. Large crowds. Uh, the, literally, it means many crowds. This is not just one crowd. Uh, this is many crowds. Multitudes is a, is a really good way to understand this. And what Luke is doing is he's adding this extra adjective here to show that there is an, an, an emphasis here on quantity. This is a massive number of people. These, in fact, are so large. You have, you have a crowd over here and another crowd here and a crowd off to the left and, and so on and so forth. And they're really encircling Jesus. The, the idea here is on multitudes, on mass numbers. You see, at this point in Jesus' ministry, it had become popular. At, at the grassroots level, it had become popular to, in some kind of way, follow Jesus' ministry, especially now as he moves from Galilee to Jerusalem, to follow him along, to, to observe his miracles, and to hear his teachings. These were fascinating to the multitudes of the people. In fact, if you go back to chapter 12, go back to chapter 12, verse 1, we, we have a, a picture of, of this more vividly defined in chapter 12. Verse 1, Luke writes this, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began to to say this to his disciples. So even back in chapter 12, the word that's used there is myriads, the myriads of people. And the term myriads has the idea of thousands. In fact, it's used sometimes to refer to 10,000 the myriads of people are pressing in and they are drawn to Jesus' ministry. One of the reasons is, is that Jesus is attacking the, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, the religious establishment. And so it's attracting this massive group of people. And Luke points our attention to this fact in Luke chapter 14. But more specifically, it's important also to note how Luke defines this, this massive multitude, these many crowds. Luke uses a verb that is, that is interesting to, to observe when he says this. Now, many crowds were going along with him. Now, in our English language, you might not recognize a distinction here. It might sound actually like they were coming after Jesus, that they had, they had you know, followed Jesus in the sincerest sense. But Luke uses a different verb here that isn't connected with, with the description of true disciples. When we read elsewhere of the disciples leaving their nets behind to get up and go with Jesus, Luke uses a different verb. But here, the verb simply means to be in movement together with. To be in movement together with. So Luke is drawing out the reality here that these masses of people were, were not true followers. They were merely identifying with Jesus at an external level. They were interested in his ministry. Perhaps his ethical teachings drew their, their curiosity. Or perhaps his attack on the religious establishment uh, made them feel good. They, they all felt oppressed 
by the religious leaders. And so Jesus' attack on this echelon of society was, was very compelling to them. But Luke, by his use of these terms, helps us understand that this was a fickle crowd. It was not an authentic group of followers. It was not a, a, a massive number of people who really were committed to Jesus, really loved Him and cherished Him above all things. This was an extraordinary fickle crowd. In fact, Jesus points this out many times. If you look at near the end of chapter 13, you have Jesus mourning over Jerusalem. Verse 34 gives us the, the indication of, of His acknowledgement of the fickleness of the people. In chapter 13, verse 34, He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you would have none of it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the reality of the people. This was the state of Israel at that popular level. And what is also fascinating to know is that some of Jesus' teaching, even in this near context, even seemed to indicate that he was, he was desperate to get followers. If you look in the, in the parable that immediately precedes this teaching on discipleship, chapter 14, chapter 14 of Luke, beginning in verse 15, you have this parable of, of the invitation being extended to a great banquet. And yet, most have no time for it. And so at the end of that parable, just preceding our text, you have these words in Luke 14, to 23, and the, the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room at the banquet table. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Jesus has just thrown open the, the invitation in the broadest possible sense. And we know that with time, that invitation is going to be extended to the nations, to, to the Gentiles. But immediately preceding or following that important invitation, on the heels of that universal call, even an urgent call, Jesus clarifies what it really means to be at the banquet table. He gives the conditions for what it means to join that supper. As universal as the call that extends to the ends of the earth, and as urgent as it is for many to come in because of the space, because of the blessings that are prepared, we must not confuse that that means the conditions for entry are eliminated. In fact, it could have been even that open, universal invitation that 
served to invite even larger crowds to Jesus' teaching. But after Luke gives us that introduction, that historical note, that description of the, the fickle crowd, he then turns to these forbidding conditions. We're going to see forbidding conditions. And I want you to know, I'm, I'm using the term forbidding conditions because in each of, three, each of the three conditions that Jesus gives, he uses the negative. We're going to see three forbidding conditions. We're going to see one immediately in verse 26 where Jesus will give a condition and say that such a person cannot be my disciple. He'll do the same thing in verse 27, the second of these forbidding conditions, where he says that such a person cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, at the end of our section that we're looking at this morning, he will say, none of you can be my disciple. Three forbidding conditions. And it's also important to note that in contrast to the great multitudes, the many crowds, Jesus is going to go from that, that broad extent, that emphasis on quantity, and he's going, going to couch his terms all in the singular. He's going to couch his terms all in the individual. He's going to move from, from the many to the one, and every time he is going to make it personal and show this multitude that these conditions are personal conditions. You cannot get to the banquet table as part of a crowd. You get there one by one. Let's look at these three forbidding conditions. The first one is in verse 26. The first one is in verse 26. It's the condition of singular devotion. It's the condition of singular devotion. So after Luke has given us the picture of the fickle multitude, and he, he now moves to this section on the forbidding conditions, and the first one is the condition of singular devotion. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. After Jesus turns, he says to them these words, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus begins with this conditional statement. And the conditional statement begins with these words, if anyone comes to me, he does this, in order to elicit contemplation, Jesus wants every individual in the crowd to, to step back for, for a, 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 a time and, and do some really serious contemplation. This conditional statement evokes this contemplation. If anyone comes to me. And notice Jesus doesn't limit this to a few people in the crowd. He doesn't limit this to certain categories within the crowd. By his use of the term anyone, he is making this a universal condition. This relates to everyone. There are no exemptions. There are no qualifications. There are no exclusions to everyone and the masses of the people that were there. This applies to them, if anyone. And he says, if anyone, and then he describes two actions. If anyone comes to me, here's the positive one. 
comes to me. Now, this is an interesting verb, and it indicates a entering into a relationship. If anyone comes to me in order to establish a relationship, in order to somehow be related to me, and then he gives the negative, but does not hate. Does not hate. Now, this is obviously a verb which immediately causes us to pay special attention. It's a strong verb, as we even know of the English rendering of that Greek verb. It's a strong verb. It expresses continuous action. It is not just that you at one time hated these things that he's going to go on to describe. Now, Jesus says, if, if anyone comes to me to enter into relationship, but does not continually hate, but does not continually hate. Now, obviously, the term hate in, in our understanding of it, is filled with notions of hostility. It's, it's filled with, with notions of maliciousness. The verb hate. We, we probably rarely, if ever, use it in any kind of positive sense. We, are, we teach our children not to hate. And to hate is a crime. So, how do we deal with Jesus' language here? And when you read many commentaries, the desire often is to smooth this over. And indeed, we are going to recognize that this is hyperbole. But let us not smooth over this too quickly. That has been the problem of Western evangelicalism for so long. To take all these strong terms and to really say it really doesn't mean anything close to that. That's not really what Jesus is saying. Now again, it is important to note that Jesus is not teaching that we are to act with maliciousness to the people that he's going to describe as the object of this hatred. In fact, we need only to turn elsewhere in Luke's own gospel to see Jesus' emphasis on love. For example, in Luke 6, verse 35, Jesus does teach that we are to love even our enemies. And in Luke 10, verses 25 to 28, a lawyer stands up and tests Jesus and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says in response to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So elsewhere, Jesus does emphasize the need for love, loving neighbor, loving enemies, and certainly that would include the the love of father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister. But what is Jesus then teaching in these very strong terms? He is focusing on devotion. He is focusing on, not necessarily on on any kind of, of negative expression, negative feeling, negative emotion. What he is 
describing here is the great chasm that must exist between our highest love and our second love. And it must be demonstrably different. He goes on. He identifies what this second love could be. Notice the object that he describes in verse 26. And there's multiple objects. He says, And anyone who, do, who comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Now, in our society, the family connections may not be that strong, but recognize that in Jewish culture, these family relations were the strongest relationships of all. You know, we sometimes even say blood is thicker than water. And certainly in the Jewish context, nothing came closer in terms of relationships than a relationship to these Family members, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. So why is Jesus then commanding us or or giving us this condition that if we don't do this, we cannot be his disciple? Let that think in. Jesus is focusing on our loves. He's focusing on our, our priorities, on our loyalties. And again, he is saying that in comparison to the kind of love that you must have for me, that is demonstrably different, nothing can come close to that in terms of your second most important horizontal loves. There can be no confusion of the two. You can't put them in the same category. They are quantifiably different. There is no comparison In terms of devotion. You see, as creatures, we cannot love all things equally. Jesus will go on himself in in chapter 16 of Luke to say this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That same principle is applied here. You cannot serve two families. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve and love and follow Christ as He deserves as a true believer and at the same time have the same kind of loyalty and devotion to these most closest relationships. Certainly, some of you can attest to this, that family connections can challenge loyalties. Some of you do have family members who hate our Lord Jesus. Some of you may even have children or parents, maybe even a spouse, that does not follow Christ, in no way identifies, maybe even scoffs at the name of Jesus. And you know these family These family relationships can challenge such loyalty. Jesus himself talked about this back in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9 verses 59 to 62, he's calling disciples to follow him. And and, and we read these words, Luke records this, And he said to another, follow me. But that candidate said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. To another, he also said, another also said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We must consider the, the impact of this as it relates to our our devotion. Do we love Jesus so much? Are we so singularly devoted to Him that even our best horizontal relationships do not stand in the same category in terms of our loyalties? In fact, Jesus presses this a little farther. Notice at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 26, when He says, Yes, and even His own life. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter and is identifying this reality that we have these loyalties to human individuals around us most often, especially in the Jewish context, our family members, and those cannot compare to the loyalty that is deserving of, uh, with Jesus. And then he gets to the real heart of the matter and says, you must hate, yes, even your own life. Here is the climax, and the grammar makes this intensive. Even your own life. Even your own life. Jesus then brings this statement to a conclusion when he says, he cannot be my disciple. Here's the second half of the condition. After he has described what may be, he then tells us what cannot be. If you don't come to us and make him the singular object of your greatest affection and devotion and loyalty that trumps all other relationships imaginable, then Jesus states it very simply, you cannot be my disciple. He will not occupy Second place. He will not be in second place to any other loyalty. He is deserving only of first. And notice he says, you cannot be my disciple. And that word for disciple means pupil or follower. And in ancient education, it was the, it was the goal of education to make imitations it was the goal of education to make followers. And the idea was that if you were going to follow someone, it meant that your life would, all be, would be devoted to, to being a, a, an example, a model of the teacher that you followed. It wasn't just to go along as it was easy and follow the teacher so long as he gave good things and fed you. No, if you were to become a, a disciple, it it meant imitation. It was not merely association or a membership. It was imitation. And discipleship was this entry into a relationship that required allegiance, that required love, devotion, unparalleled to any others. You see, there can be only one ultimate love. Only one mastering love, only one supreme authority, only one Lord. All other relationships must be ordered around that reality. 
And so as we come to the end of this particular condition, let me ask you, do you love him more than your closest friends? Do you love Jesus more than your closest family members? And is this love not just in word only, but is quantifiably, it is, it is demonstrably greater? That's what Jesus is asking. Let's now look at the second condition that Jesus gives here. It's the condition of self-negation. This is the second of three forbidding conditions, the condition of self-negation. And it's found in verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, and what we would love to do if we saw masses assembling to hear the gospel we would encourage and we'd be positive and try and bring them in, try and rope them in. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Rather than trying to make it easy for them, he puts it all up front. He speaks it as it is. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He begins again with that word, well, a different word this time, whoever, but it communicates the same idea as the anyone back in verse 26. This is related to everyone in the crowd. This is not limited to a certain portion, to a category. This applies equally to all. And this time Jesus describes the, the concept of discipleship a little differently. Here he describes it in these terms, not in a love-hate relationship, But he describes it as carrying a cross. Carrying a cross. He uses the verb here to carry, and it's one that has the idea of sustaining a burden. So it's not just the idea of to lift up once, or to even to lift up into place. The idea of this verb is that it is sustained activity. To carry a burden. It is an ongoing activity that is implied in this verb, and the object that is carried is the cross. It's a cross. Now, of course, when we see crosses today, we immediately identify it with the wonderful grace that came through Jesus' vicarious atonement, His death for our sin on the cross. We look at that cross, and it is to us something inherently attractive. Because of what our Savior did. But remember, this is before Jesus' death. And the cross was certainly part of the, 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 uh, the worldview or the understanding of, of the people in that day. You see, the Romans had, had taken that cross and had perfected their, their, their ultimate torture. Their, their, their punishment of capital crimes that the cross was that most hideous way to punish criminals. And as everyone in the crowd knew, the cross was nothing to glory in. The cross symbolized death in the most shameful, painful way that was imaginable. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer has famously said that when Jesus gives these words, that, that, that one who wants to be a disciple must carry his own cross, 
Bonhoeffer says when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's what is involved here with this reference to the cross. And notice, it is he must bear his own cross. Again, Jesus makes this a personal issue. You don't do this corporately. You don't just get in the crowd of others and then together you share the burden of bearing a cross. No, Jesus makes it very personal and individual because he is pointing to self-negation. He must bear his own cross. It was the custom among the Romans that when a man was was declared guilty and the, the punishment was crucifixion, that that individual, after he had undergone beatings, would then, as a public display of shame and mockery, that individual would be forced to carry the cross upon which he would be executed. That was the thinking of the cross, and Jesus takes that and says, this is the condition of discipleship. This is the the picture of what it means to, to be a true follower of Jesus. And he says, not only that, but what's interesting here is that he says he must take up his own cross and, look at the text, verse 27, and come after me. Jesus is focusing here on association. And what's fascinating to note is not that Jesus says you must do this, But he's already pointing to the fact that Jesus himself is bearing a cross. Jesus himself is the one who is leading the way. Jesus isn't up front and just parading in ease and comfort. No, if you pick up a cross to come after Jesus, he is pulling his own cross before yours. And again, this emphasizes the reality of discipleship. It is imitation. It is following what our Lord has given us as an example. And so in this condition, Jesus is emphasizing that in this self-negation, there is also a radical association. As we deny ourselves and take up the cross, we are following in Jesus' footsteps. Now certainly... Jesus here is not teaching us that we somehow participate in his vicarious atonement. He is not giving us this condition to suggest that by doing this, we can atone for our own sins. Now, if you look in other religions that, are, that have some, to some degree taken on elements of the Bible, they will teach that, that by taking up our cross, by suffering, we can atone and make ourselves pure and therefore be accepted into heaven. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. What he is teaching is a lifestyle that is marked by a willingness to suffer together with and for Christ. I think this is what Paul had in mind when he said in Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him and the power of of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. It means to be rejected by the world. It means to be afflicted by the world, by the devil, by the flesh. It means to be persecuted. It means to be struck down. But as Paul elsewhere states, 
in 2 Corinthians 4, 11, he says, we, we always carry around the body of the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our own body. He goes on to say, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I like what J.A. Packer says as he defines this. He says, self-denial is a summons to submit to the authority of God as Father and of Jesus as Lord and to declare lifelong war on one's instinctive egoism. What is to be negated is not personal self or one's Existence as a rational and responsible human being, the required denial is of carnal self, the egocentric, self-deifying urge with which we were born and which dominates us so ruinously in our natural state. If you're not willing to do this, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. There's a third condition that he gives, the third of three forbidding conditions, And it is found at the end of this section, verse 33, we had the condition of singular devotion in verse 26, the condition of self-negation in verse 27, and now we have the condition of sweeping renunciation in verse 33, the condition of sweeping renunciation. Look at the end of our section, verse 33, Jesus has another statement, and again, the wording is just a little bit different, and it focuses on a different perspective of discipleship. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So the first condition emphasized relationships and said there must be a quantifiable, demonstrable difference in how loyal you are to me compared to your loyalty to even the closest of friends and family. The second condition emphasized lifestyle and comfort. You must be willing to negate yourself, to suffer, to be persecuted, afflicted, downtrodden, being sentenced to death for my sake. And now in this third condition, he emphasizes possessions. Relationships, comforts, and now possessions. And it's an interesting verb that he uses here. None of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. The verb that's used is is found six times in the New Testament, most of all by Luke. Every other instance where this verb is found, it means to say goodbye. And it's used with people. It's to bid farewell to others, not in any negative sense, but to say goodbye even of close friends. To take leave of is another way to translate that. Only here it is used of possessions. So what Jesus is saying is that you, you must take leave of. You must say goodbye to bid farewell to, now notice this, all his own possessions. It is sweeping. This renunciation here is sweeping in nature. Now what does it mean when he says all his own possessions? And again, we we have to be careful about trying to make this too easy. Again, our our North American, Western uh, approach is to say, well, he really doesn't mean that. It really has nothing to do with possessions. It's just extreme hyperbole. We must not do that. At the same time, we do recognize that Jesus is not calling us to uh, to a life of asceticism. 
It wouldn't be the right application to move out to the Mojave Desert, find a piece of dirt, or to the nearest freeway overpass, for that matter. The issue isn't with having possessions. The issue is with those possessions having you. And as, as we all know, that possessions are some of the most destructive things as it relates to following Jesus. Just, just think of your own life and the temptations that come every day with respect to things, temporal things that will burn up, temporal things that maybe even tomorrow will be gone and you won't even care, but at the moment, those things interfere, those things tempt you, and they'll challenge you about your relationship to Jesus Christ. We have a, a good illustration of this, even in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18. You know of this situation, Luke 18, verses 18 to 27. Let me read it, and it, and it points to the heart of, of our, our, our obsession with belongings. Luke 18, 18 to 27. Here another ruler comes to question Jesus. And this ruler says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him and says, Hmm, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's getting at the heart of the issue in the man's heart. Jesus continues and says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Basically the second half of the Decalogue the last five of the Ten Commandments. And, and for many legalists, these things are easy to do, the last half of the Decalogue. And, and so the man says to Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Think of how hard it is to get that thread through a needle, if any of you have ever tried that. I haven't for a very long time. It is harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it asked the right question, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This rich young ruler had the last half of the Decalogue down, but his problem was in the first half. In fact, it was with the very first word of the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus focuses on that. And in this third condition, the renunciation, the sweeping enunciation, all other gods, all other objects must be renounced. You've already renounced relationships. You already renounce your own commitment to comfort and ease in life your own ease in this world. You've already sentenced yourself to daily dying. And now Jesus says, now we've got to talk about possessions. 
You have to get to the point when you can say, nothing in my hands I bring, and simply to the cross I cling. And Jesus says, if that isn't the case, if you are not willing to renounce all of these things on my behalf, none, not one, none of you can be my disciple. It is impossible. You do not have the ability. Those are the three conditions. And in this, Jesus also provides, in the middle of this section, two fearful warnings. Let me read through these quickly. They're little parables to help us understand what was really at stake here in the lives of these crowds. Beginning in verse 28, we read of a first small parable, verses 28 to 30, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he is enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Towers were common in those days. If you had a little plot of land with a vineyard and some livestock, you needed a tower. They were important to, to watch out over your flock. They were important to protect against, against robbers and, and predators. Everyone knew what it means to, 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 to build a, a, a tower and and they could undoubtedly picture, scattered across the horizon, the, the, the silliness of these half-built towers. What good are they? These half-built towers, when somebody goes about to, to build a tower to protect his territory, can't even finish. It's a monument to the man's ineptitude, is what it is. It's a visible monument to ineptitude. And such a person is shamed. And this is what the problem was with the crowds. You see, for them, it was easy to get the free food. For them, it was even popular to associate with Jesus. But their problem was, as Jesus points out, they had not sat down and counted the cost. He follows up with another one, verses 31 to 33. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while he is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The key is at the end of verse 31. Will he not first sit down and consider? To fail to do that and to lose the war is the epitome of shame Such a king would be ridiculed by his own people at best. He would be humiliated and drawn through the streets and possibly even executed at worst. It's shameful. Jesus uses that to these crowds and says, before you keep walking along this path to Jerusalem, you need to take some time. You need to sit down and you need to consider. You need to calculate. Are you willing to forsake relationships? Are you willing to forsake comfort and ease in life? Are you willing to forsake your idols, your possessions, and love me more? 
Now, when you read these, and especially when you read it in the context of Luke's gospel, those crowds were not able. They were not able. The same ones who found him fascinating were the ones to also cry out, crucify him, crucify him. But we must not just stop in Jesus' time. We must also look on our own lives. Jesus' words are needed for us today. And it's important to understand this. It's not what we have to offer. It's what we don't. It's not what we're willing to live for. It's what we're willing to die for. It's not your intellectual abilities and spiritual giftedness, which is evidence of discipleship. It's not your accomplishments that define whether you are a disciple. It's the absence of of these things that Jesus has talked about. We must have a singular devotion. We must have a self-negation. We must have a sweeping renunciation. I think this idea is illustrated well in Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now, obviously, the cross now to us, as I've said, is a wondrous thing. But as the writer of this hymn brings out, our cross in response to his requires us to do some radical things. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Now you may respond to Jesus' words and look at your life and you may say, This is impossible. I cannot. But remember what Jesus said to the disciples who recognized the same thing. With God, all things are possible. Even these conditions. In your own strength, yes, utterly impossible. In your own effort to to, to get rid of these things, if you work according to your own strength, you will fail. You will still love yourself. But with God, these things are possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony of the gospel writer, Luke. How we need to hear these words. Some undoubtedly need to hear these words for the first time. Some here may have no experience in this whatsoever. We pray for them. And we know as we look to you that all things are possible. And we ask that you would do that work of grace in their lives. 
that they would renounce and that they would deny and that they would come to Jesus and through self-negation find true life. And for us, as those who have already taken up the cross and are following Christ, we need this reminder so many times along the path we put the cross down for a few moments we begin to look on the periphery and we need this reminder to keep our eyes focused on Jesus the author and perfecter of this faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame and now waits for us and even intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Keep our eyes fixed on Him. Give us the strength to do the things that are necessary as part of this life. And we ask it so that your Son, Jesus, would receive all the glory, be magnified in our dying. We ask it in His name. Amen.